You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. So we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5. And we, we will be in a couple of different texts today because of the kind of message, kind of series this is. While you're headed to Ephesians chapter 5, I'll just tell you what's happening. Paul constructed a lot of his letters. He used his own personality. Obviously, the Spirit of God, he believed, was moving him to write these things, which is why uh, they were Scripture when they came off his pen. And, and the church recognized that, didn't create the Scriptures, but the church recognized that. The way Paul constructed this letter is he's telling the church at Ephesus, this place where he spent a couple of years of his ministry, a long time, just like Corinth, making disciples and, and training the, the people of the church to go into other places. They were being equipped to serve. And then in the middle of this letter, actually in chapter four and verse 17, he says, now, here's what this looks like. Don't walk like the pagans anymore. You've seen their outbursts of anger. You've seen their sexual immorality. You've seen them living by the seat of their pants, doing exactly as they pleased. Yeah, you could do that, church, but you've been rescued. You've been set in heavenly places in Christ. Remember what I just told you in the first three chapters of this letter. Now he's going to tell us what that looks like. And I'm going to begin uh, in the middle of, of his discussion, so obviously we can't cover the rest of Ephesians but I will say we, we need these words from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. He had just said, by the way, wake up. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now those of you who are, are already ahead of me are saying, well, aren't you going to go into that wives submit to your husbands thing? Well, I'm going to address that, but that's, that's under the other things that, we've already, that Paul's already addressed here. The, the wives submit to your husbands is under this as much as husbands love your wives is under this, as much as children obey your parents is under this, and, and servants be subject to your masters. This being subject to one another looks different in different contexts. God ordained human institutions like the government and the home, which kind of business kind of springs out of that, the, the home and, and the church. And in those places, he's called for order. Our problem is when we apply order in a fleshly way, it gets very ugly. So I'll give you an example of that. An acquaintance in ministry who served as a pastor and is now teaching in a seminary uh, had a couple in his church come to him and counseling, by the way, isn't, isn't just for senior pastors or elders. Uh, that's something, according to scripture, we all ought to be doing. In fact, anytime you give your opinion, your counseling is just the question is, are you giving biblical counsel or not? But this couple with trouble happened to go to their pastor. And here was the situation. The wife lays out the story, her side of the story. The husband lays out his side of the story. And here's the situation. 
he got a promotion or was offered a promotion in work and it would take them out of state. They've both grown up in this area. Their families in this area. He's thinking, this is, this is my dream job. I, I really want to do this. She's thinking, but our roots are here. So he wants to take it and she doesn't want him to take it. And they are fighting over the whole thing. Now, I, other couples probably don't fight over stuff like that. I'll just tell you, we do. We do. Sometimes struggle. You just the whole power struggle thing. Uh, my wife and I go at it. Go at it sometimes. And so, the woman said, "So, Pastor, here's the situation. He really wants this job. It's out of state. Our parents are here. Our children know nothing else." And Ephesians chapter five says that he's supposed to love me like Christ loved the church. And if he did, we would not move. You know what he said, don't you? He said, pastor, I work very hard to support my family. And part of that work is when I have an opportunity for advancement and this has fallen into my lap. I have this chance to provide for my family in this way. And yeah, it's going to take us out of state. But Ephesians chapter five says that my wife is supposed to submit to me. Right, pastor? So what are you going to do when that couple comes to you? Stuart Scott is the name of the pastor. Some of you have read some of his books. And I was waiting to see, yeah, I want to hear, what, what did you say? Bible says, submit to me. Bible says, love me. You hold that over somebody's head and beat them over the head with the word of God. I mean, how can you use the Bible in such a fleshly way? Stuart Scott wisely said, go on. Go on. I mean, there's more to this. This isn't about keeping rules. Yes, there are commands all over scripture and, and we ought to take them very seriously. We don't. We pick and choose the ones we think we can handle and the ones we want others to handle. We're really quick to put that onto them. This is the definitive text on submitting to one another, what I've just read to you. And you'll notice in verse 21, it says in the New American Standard, the last phrase, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Uh, I am going to give you three different views on this subject, and this is, this is not the whole message, and we're going to talk application. In fact, we'll, we're going to head to a different text of Scripture pretty soon. But there are three views of this idea of, of be subject to one another. And some of you have read books or have heard messages on something called mutual submission. And there are, there are people who have made great hay out of this. Some of them because they're trying to push others out of or get themselves out from under something that they considered a, a, a harsh form of rule. And some of them are under a pretty harsh, unbiblical form of rule. But here's one view. Uh, this is the egalitarian view of this. And that is there are no male-female roles in the church or the home. Submission is everyone to everyone in every circumstance. And that means that, that um, 
elders in the church can be men or women. That means that in, in the home, husband and wife are, are absolutely in every area 50-50, and there's, there's no submission. They just, they just work, work with and work for one another. And one of the texts that is used is that in Christ, there is neither male nor female, and, and so the people who would take this view would, would say, so then it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And there are, uh, there are mild forms of this point of view and extreme forms of this point of view. And I, I don't want to belittle, and if this is your point of view, I'm not trying to belittle you. I, I'd like to have a conversation about it. Uh, but, but it is very hard being a careful student of the scripture, in my opinion, to support this view scripturally. But it is one that is out there, and so I'm, I'm bringing that before you. Another view of be subject to one another <clears throat> is the one that a lot of people that I have great respect for their handling of scripture. Uh, this is their point of view on Ephesians chapter five. And that is that word be subject to or submit is actually a military term. And when you see it used in the New Testament, in fact, I'm going to show you all of those instances in the New Testament, it's always used of someone putting themselves under someone else's authority. Every time, uh, with the possible exception of this one, and, and we'll get to, to my point of view, this is, this is John Piper's point of view, uh, Man and Woman in Biblical Perspective is just an excellent, an excellent study of, of the bigger picture in these areas. So I'm not necessarily, and I could probably be, be persuaded this direction. I'm thinking though, contextually, I have a little bit of a problem with this point of view. And, and that's, by the way, what the rest of the message is going to be. Because I do believe that there are times when someone in authority can be, in context, subject to someone else. And so my perspective on this text is that it is godly to put the interests of others first, whether or not they hold organizational or, or familial authority. So, so as an example, in fact, I'm just going to give you the text of scripture before I give you the example of this. The Lord Jesus being submissive to his parents. He went down with them, that's Joseph and Mary when he's 12 years old, continuing in subjection to them. The Lord Jesus is God. And yet he submitted himself to his mother and father. And his mother treasured all these things, the things that had just happened in Jerusalem with Jesus being left behind and talking to the, to the priests. The 70 returned with joy after Jesus sent them out, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. Again, that's another use of that word in the New Testament. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Same word. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. And Paul's talking about those who, who just, they want to blurt something out in church. And, and so in Corinth, evidently people just say, I got a word. And they'd stand up and, and interrupt things. And a couple of possibilities. One would be that your spirit prophet uh, is, is subject to you. In other words, you can control yourself. I think that fits the context. But others say, well, no, there are, it's the others who are standing by uh, saying, whatever you have to say, you need to, you need to submit that to church leadership. I, I tend to, to think that he's saying, control yourself. Ephesians 1.22, he put all things in subjection under his feet. Place under. Ephesians 5.24, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Peter uses this word freely uh, five different times. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution. Uh, 1 Peter 2.18, servants, be submissive to your masters. Peter says, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. 1 Peter 3.22, that speaking of the Lord Jesus, who's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, Jesus rules. And you younger men, be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. We're going to go to Luke chapter 22. We were just there during communion time. In Luke chapter 22, the Lord Jesus has, in Luke's account, uh, just finished instituting the table of the Lord. It's Passover. He said, I really, I've, I've just been passionate about taking this meal with you, this last Passover. And so there were several cups. There was the bread that was passed when Jesus said, this is my body. And then there was the cup. A lot of people would say it was a fourth cup. Uh, and Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so after drinking this, there was a squabble at the table. And so I'm going to read for you Luke chapter 24. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them. Do you get the picture? Okay, this is at the table. They're coming in to celebrate this meal. The Lord Jesus had just said, hey guys, go send a couple of guys out to prepare the meal. You're going to see somebody here and follow him and tell him the Lord needs this room. And Jesus had it all set up. So this is that room. There arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you know me. So there's a, a dispute going on among the disciples. As to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. And they had good reasons, probably. We're not really told. Maybe it was Peter and James and John saying, guys, we ought to be closer to Jesus in this table setting. It probably was about table arrangement because if, if, you're, if you remember, James and John's mama went to Jesus and said, could my boys sit at your right hand and your left when you, when you rule? And, and she was 
playing mama bear and trying, trying to get those boys in a, a good, powerful position. Peter could have said, yeah, but I'm the one. Remember, he said he gave me the keys to the kingdom. We don't know what this discussion was all about. But that word regarded indicates that, that the position these men craved was to be highly regarded in the eyes of men. And based on their own estimations of themselves, they may have been quarreling over the seating arrangement. So you picture this. What were their standards? How did you, you know, if you, if you say, and we know better than to say this out loud, right? But I mean, if you think you're the greatest, it's a lot easier for other people to see that. In this case, they had the boldness to say, I'm the greatest. This is the whole Muhammad Ali thing that, that turned so many, many of us off when, when he was probably doing it for press. When you think you're greater than someone else, I mean, what kind of things could they have said? Who was the first disciple? Who had cast out the most demons, right? Remember that one? Oh, okay, we did that one together. We'll take that. It's, it's kind of like watching Lord of the Rings. And there, you know, how many orcs did I take out? Who got to see the greatest number of Jesus' miracles? Who was praised when he confessed that Jesus was the Christ? And the others would have said, and then right after that, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Whose mother got to Jesus first about kingdom seating positions? Who was entrusted to care for the money, Judas might have said at this point. But we do the same thing, it's just in a different cultural context. Who makes more money? Who has more power? Who has the most advanced degree? Who oversees the largest number of people? Who, who, is, uh, who, who gets a prominent positions in church? Who gets a, to be a church officer? Who has the most friends? Who has the most outward beauty? Who dresses the, the best? Uh, a very well-worded Moravian prayer says this, from the unhappy desire of becoming great, gracious Lord, deliver us. They're fighting about who's the greatest. Isn't that the case in any setting in your workplace, in a, a home setting, in a church setting, when people are trying to get their way? They're saying, this ought to be, and I've got Bible behind me. It's no different than a husband and wife whacking the Bible over one another's heads using God's holy word in a fleshly way. And Paul and the Lord Jesus and a number of others say there's a better way. The Corinthians, Corinthians are fighting over who had the, the coolest spiritual gifts. Paul says, yeah, be passionate about your gifts, be passionate about service, but I'm going to show you a better way. And so Jesus said in verse 25, are you there? Luke 22, 25. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. This is more evidence of how the kingdom of Jesus is absolutely not of this world. When he said my kingdom is not of this world, we should very much pay attention to this. You go back to the Beatitudes. You go back to the ways the Lord Jesus said his people ought to live. You go back to the views of the Lord Jesus even on adultery and, and murder and, and see where he rules his people the kingdoms of this world run based on titles, spheres of influence, job description. Mortals crave 
to be exalted over other mortals, period. Even if you are someone who has never had a position of power in the home or in the church or in the workplace or in the government, so often people who are in that position are the ones who complain the most about those who are. It happens to all of us. Jesus used a, a common title for dignitaries in his day, just to illustrate this. It's the word benefactor in, in English. The, the benefactor, a, a, parallel, a parallel in our day might be uh, senator, Mr. Senator, or congressman. One, one very powerful person was, was called by her, her name uh, by a, a reporter a few years ago, and the, the, the lady said, I worked hard for this position, and you will call me, and, and she gave her title. That's fine. Mr. Speaker. Mr. President, Pastor, Mr., Mrs., Sir, Ma'am. And so Jesus is, is saying, uh, and by the way, there's nothing sinful about owning an honorable position, but Jesus uncovered in his disciples a lust for titles a lust for power, a lust for a position where you can hold sway and manipulate other people, get them to do just what you want. So he said, kings of the Gentiles do it that way. They lord it over people. They have titles. They want to be called benefactor or benefactress. But talking to his own, he says in verse 26, but it's not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. Jesus did teach us to submit to authority, by the way. You, you are under authority or you are in a dangerous and unstable place. We, we think the American way, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and yeah, pay your bills, eat your own bread, work with your hands. That's a good thing. That's a noble thing according to Scripture. But we tend to push that into every area, including our relationship with God and other people, to the extent that we want to be completely independent and never answer to anyone. So I ask you a very personal question. When is the last time you submitted to someone else, whether they were over you in authority or over under you in authority, and said, why don't we just do it that way? And not, well, pfft, let's just do it your way. Do you know how, how much that would change institutions that God's ordained in, in government, in the family, in the church? When you or I say in our hearts, I don't know that I like that. But you're going to do it anyway. We need to be in, under authority, and I, I do believe that we're in a dangerous or unstable place when we don't have order and authority. That's why I, I cannot accept that, that first point of view. You have a role, though, even if you lead in other areas, that sometimes calls you to stay under the direction of others. And so I back off and illustrate before we go a little bit further through this text. I grew up in a very strict background. We didn't dance. I mean, that, we didn't square dance. That's, that we even, we had to opt out of that in gym class and that's just, that was just the setting I grew up in. But, but I'll just 
tell you now, and ladies don't go, oh, I wish my husband would do this, but my wife and I took a couple of ballroom dancing classes, okay? And uh, I, I learned some things about that. And that is, it takes two. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm bigger than her, and so I could throw her around, but it just looks really ugly, and it, it's, it's a bad thing. So that's not leadership. But truth is, when you're dancing, somebody's got to lead. When you look at those relationships, whether it's husband-wife relationships or other relationships, we're dancing. Somebody's leading, but, but together, we are working together for a, a common cause. And when there's that kind of humility, it's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. So there are times, if you put it into church structure, as, as, as an elder here, there's authority I have, and, and not to tell you how to mow your lawn, but because I'm the one who delivers the word of God, there's an authority that goes along with, with reading and teaching the scriptures. So there's a, an, an office authority and there's a, a scriptural authority here. But I'll be honest with you, when, when uh, my wife governs a vacation Bible school or a kid's quest, I'm under her authority, and I, I like it that way. She's a lot better administrator than I am. And so there are ways where I say, what do I do here? It's the same way in your home, in your workplace. This be subject to one another is a, is a sweet thing when our attitude is, I, I have a bigger agenda than making sure everybody sees me for what my title is. When I submit to someone else, I'm putting that person in a position of honor, I am saying, I am willing to do things your way because I respect you. And that attitude doesn't invite a breakdown in God's order for human institutions. In fact, it makes them run better. We know what authority is. And yes, there are times when the one in authority has to say, this is where it has to go. This is, this is what we're doing. We're not going to name the baby Pinetta. We're not going to change the spelling of, of you know, okay, that, I, I'm on spellings because I've seen some really weird spellings of common names lately. The point is, yes, authority sometimes has to say, here, but when I submit to someone else, when God calls his people to submit to one another, it invites the people of God to put personal interests behind the interests of others. It's a byproduct of humility. It's a byproduct of gospel living where the Lord Jesus, read Philippians chapter two, where the Lord Jesus willingly subjected himself to a human body, to human frailty, into the hands of sinners. It's a gospel-focused thing. Submitting to others is the result of submitting to God, and we could launch into a study of 1 Peter now if we had a few days. Submitting to others is to be like Jesus. Submitting to others makes room for ministry productivity instead of just stalemate and squabble because I feel very strongly that I need to have my way in this. Submitting to others actually gives you space to see your own weakness, and you realize, you know, I should have said yes to that a long time ago instead of just my instant answer, parents, isn't it a lot easier to say, no. You look at biblical leaders, and I'm talking about leaders, best leaders through the scriptures who submitted to others, Moses. Even in the instance of Korah, when Korah says, why do you guys get to bring the sacrifices? Why do you guys get to do all the cool stuff? What did Moses do? Said, 
bring it. Let's let God decide this. Joshua, of course, the Lord Jesus, the apostle Paul, Barnabas. You see all of these powerful, and I'll even say type A leaders backing off because it was the honorable thing to do to submit to others, even though they really did have authority. So as we look on through this text, sorry, we're back to Luke. Verse 26, but it is not this way with you, Luke twenty-two twenty-six. but it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. So when Paul is talking about being subject to one another, he's not talking exclusively about, about keeping the natural order of things. He's saying sometimes those of you who are in authority need to serve. Do I need to remind you what was about to happen at this meal when the one who just said this stood up from the table and girded himself with the towel because no one else had done it and knelt down at the stinky, dirty feet of those disciples and behaved as a servant? He said, the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. And when you're the youngest, you have to learn from others. You're usually subject to their correction as the youngest child in the house. And it's like, we know this will. Everybody tells you what to do. It's like, okay. The leader like the servant. So the servant is distinguished from the leader by job description and by authority. And so Jesus is calling his people to seek great usefulness instead of great notoriety. I'll say that again. The Lord Jesus is calling his people to seek to be useful, to not seek great notoriety, but to seek usefulness, to be available, rather than hungering after a title like senator, God's kind of great one finds satisfaction in titles like, hey you, the one with the mop. It's all right. It's better to be useful. It's better to be the hey you, Jesus is saying, than to be a powerful manipulator without God's character. So verse 27, Jesus says, so who's greater? (laughs) This is so good coupled with John 13, which is where in, in my companion study in here, we're going to look at John 13 this morning. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? What have they just been doing? Arguing about position. Who's the greatest? And Jesus said, who is greatest? Who's the greatest? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? In other words, the one who comes around washing feet. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? In other words, who's greater in earthly pecking order? But he said, I am among you as the one who serves. And I don't know what happened there. But I think this is probably about the time he's getting up to grab the towel. This living lesson of King Jesus about what mutual submission really looks like, it's not a fight between men and women or between those with titles and those with lesser titles or no titles. He says to the disciples in verses 28 and following, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's saying, guys, this this isn't a permanent arrangement. 
Paul said later on that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be considered with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. So Jesus said, yeah, party's coming. Rather than immediately tearing into the guys, he pointed out that there were plans for their future that he had. And he, he taught them that they would indeed occupy important positions but not before hard times and for most of them martyrdom when when you are subject to someone else's authority you realize that being in that position makes you like more like Jesus as much as about anything else in the christian life because you are being subject to someone else who often makes calls and we're not talking about asking you to sin that's, that's about the only kind of acceptable rebellion in God's word. But when, when you're being asked to do something that's not your way and you allow that to happen, that's a good thing. These guys were going to be in the hands of others and with the exception of Judas who took his own life as an apostate unbeliever, and John, who history tells us died of natural causes at a very old age after being boiled in oil and a few other things, uh, all the other guys, 10 of these guys were going to be in someone else's hand. And so then Jesus said to Peter, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I want to make an exegetical comment even though we're not, we're not really... <laughs> I am going through this text carefully, but we're going to speed up here a little bit. But I just want to pause. This, our English translations really don't come out the way this was worded. Jesus said, talking to one person said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. This wasn't just between Jesus and Peter. If I could give a Southern translation, Peter or Simon, Satan has requested permission to sift y'all like wheat. Satan had requested permission to sift all of those disciples like wheat. So even though he's talking individually to Peter, the request was the devil is, is demanding that he be able to, to take you guys to a thrashing bee. Satan's demand was to trouble all the disciples. When you compare and contrast the kingdoms, when you read more of this section of, of Luke, uh, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of Gentiles, the kingdom of Satan, things are often not what they seem. Satan could not sift the disciples. Satan could not enter Judas or otherwise have darkness reign, as, as other, another text tells us, without permission of the one and ultimate authority. And yet the Lord Jesus let it happen. Proud earthly kingdoms are allowed to exist to show how much better is the rule of Jesus over our hearts. And we're not going to go into Jesus' prediction of what was going to happen with Peter, but I want to go back to the dance. Go back to the idea of, of submitting to one another and what that really looks like. You know what kind of material you have to work with in the church or at your house or your workplace or, or in the government? I, I know I'm so thankful for the city of Rice Lake. Still, at two times a month when the city council meets, uh, there is someone who is slated 
to pray before the city council meeting. And that ha I get to do that two months out of the year. And I am so thankful. But I know going into that setting that you have desks full of aldermen and a mayor in a community that is very often divided over how to spend money, over policy, over personalities. And I've been around long enough to know a lot of those personalities. So I step into that situation and I beg God to help these people. Yes, even unbelievers, God put them in that position of authority to ask God to help these people to seek first his will, not the will of the majority first to have character, to let cooler heads prevail. If that can happen in a public setting, and it can, how much more in the church, how much more in a Christian home? <clears throat> the closer people come to the Lord Jesus, the lower their view of self becomes. And the lower your view of self becomes, the less likely you are to make selfish demands on other people. And the less likely you are to make selfish demands on other people, the more likely it is that you will understand what it means to be subject to others. When I have a right view of God, I have a right view of myself. When I have a right view of myself, I can't help but be humble. And I can't help but humble myself before other people. Let me tell you how that looks. Because your pride just cannot stand while you're walking under the rule of King Jesus. Some ways to demonstrate that, that changed heart that would make you live out be subject to one another. Whether you're talking about subject to an authority God has placed over you in the home or in the church or in the government, or when you are submitting to someone who is in other orders over you. One of them is this. You stop demanding that others serve you. Isn't it true? Think about the last time you got mad. Some people say, I, I never get mad. Okay, the last time you cried about something when you wanted it and you didn't get it, okay, you were mad. It's just a different kind of anger. Think about the last time you got angry. You say, what did I really want? I wanted others to serve me. I wanted circumstances to come out my way. I mean, that really is the heart of idolatry. It's this ungratefulness. I must have more. I can't live without more. When you are subject to one another, when you have this kind of heart, you stop demanding that other people serve you. You realize that the king of the universe sees that hunger for control. He sees your hidden motives. He accurately diagnoses the problem and he says, I have a better way. You can actually find joy when you don't get your way. Another way you can demonstrate this is you give up the illusion that you are self-sufficient. Take a look at Peter in this circumstance. I'll never deny you. They could kill me. I'll never deny you. And you, you read what Jesus told Peter. This, this place where you have realized, I can't do this on my own. I have no power to do this on my own. That's where you understand that you are not strong enough on your own to endure any trial. He knows you better than you know yourself. And when you read 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that says no temptation is overtaking you, but what is common to man, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation make the way to escape. That doesn't mean God doesn't give you more than you can handle. What that means is he gives you more than you can handle, but he is there for his people and his grace is enough. You are not enough on your own 
And there's one more. People who are submissive to others have a lifestyle of repentance. That's where you see that you will always find yourself begging for mercy. Did Jesus say, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift all of you guys like wheat, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. And when you return, what's he saying? Well, he told him, Peter, you're going to deny it. You're going to fall tonight. After you fall, turn around. And he told him to serve others. As a person always begging for mercy, you are the best kind of helper, servant to other people. God already has plans for your repentance and your recovery. And you, you look at, at what your responsibility is even here at Providence to help carry out other people, uh, uh, help other people carry out ideas that, that aren't as good as yours because they're in a position to serve better perhaps than you are. To take, to take Sunday morning sermons personally, to realize this, this is God speaking to me. This, this isn't just, I'm going to sit here and decide if this was a good sermon or a bad sermon. To, to actively engage in, in finding other people who are different from me and listen to them. All, all of those are ways that we're subject to one another. So then I'm not running from what is uncomfortable. I am running toward what God has called me to. Let's pray.